Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. How's it going? How you doing? What's going up? What's going down? Nothing, nothing. Sideways. Oh, maybe sideways. We just got 25 centimeters of snow, which is just such a nice way to end March. And... I, oh, I guess I can say I'm, I'm starting a new book project. I have a series of books coming out about Canada and the current state of everything. So I'm a little bit in like book writing hell because I don't have much time to write the first draft. Wow. I love that. I mean, we're both writing books right now. So I, I, um, I feel you and I feel for you because it's, it's quite the experience to do. So, you know, congratulations. I'm looking forward to it. Your books in the past have been great. And so I expect nothing more but more of the same and perhaps even better. So <laughs> I do expect a little bit more. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm hoping a little bit better. And the nice thing about these books is that they're going to be shorter. And so the first book is on the social safety net. How much fun is that for a topic? And actually, it's going to dovetail into what we are talking about today. But before we get there, how are you? Okay. Uh, I've been feeling a little bit under the weather this weekend, but that's okay. I am on the up and the sun is out finally and it's not raining finally, although it's the rain is, we're supposed to get another atmospheric river uh, this week again, but I'm doing pretty good. And I wanted to update you on something. Actually. Ooh, I love updates. So our topic last week Remember how we were talking about like fast news, slow news as it related to how the police were releasing so such little information um, on uh, the this shooting by a, a 16-year-old out of Edmonton? Yes. So there was a slow news story. I don't know if you caught it, but there was a follow-up that was done, at least I saw one, that was done by the Toronto Star that was a slower um, sort of approach to the news. It took more time to come out, and there was a lot more detail that was released. And in the article, it seems pretty clear that the police were not the ones to release the detail that uh, appeared in the article. That uh, you know, it was the investigative journalism that we need. Uh, have you? Did you see that? I did see that article. Yes. Yeah, so I just wanted to let our our listeners know that something like that did come out. You know, it is it, there's still choices that are made in in that article. You know, like there still could have been a bit of a discussion on mental health. It's not in there, and so on. So it like doesn't address all of the concerns that we raised with you. But it's you know it's worth noting that um, that that slow news story did happen, and uh, it just to me opens up this question of, uh, you know, how to report the news and when and what. It's like, do you report what the police um, uh, have given you right away or do you report what is verifiable from other sources? Uh, and and how do, you, how do you follow up on that? So anyway, I just thought it would be good to give that update. Well, and also, like, there's nothing wrong and actually it's quite good to report what you don't know and why you don't know certain things. And oftentimes journalists uh, will ask me if I'm critical of coverage that includes the police. Well, what do we do when we have no more information other than what's been given to us by police? And I always say, like, right? What? you don't know, like say what you don't know, say the questions that you're waiting on the police to answer or say 
you know, other kind of, of questions that you've put out there that you that you're waiting on reactions or whatever. Add that to the story. Give us something. Give us something to show that this is a story that's been thought about and not just copy and pasted off of a police media release. Yeah. One other thing to note, Nora, another piece of information to update the viewers uh, or the listener, the viewers. <laughs> They're <laughs> the not listeners. seeing us. Uh, well, maybe they should. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe they no. absolutely shouldn't. Um, <laughs> uh, one <laughs> other piece of information to update y'all on. Are you ready? I'm ready. I think I know what it is. So go ahead. Well, now that TikTok has been banned by the government, we've decided that it would be um, the right time for us, <laughs> for us to jump right in there and get get a TikTok account because, you know, we, we want to be wrong in all of the right ways. So um, we have a TikTok account and you can follow us on TikTok. We'll, we're trying out this thing where we will put um, little snippets of the episodes on TikTok and Instagram so you can get a little bit of a sense uh, of what we're talking about that week. We'll see if that uh, is um, helpful towards getting our podcast out there. Uh, But yeah, follow us on TikTok if you're on there and, you know, want to support us. Well, and I think that it's called a stitch, right? Like use those things to make uh, stitches. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like what the fuck do I know? <laughs> but there, there could be some good content that uh, that uh, it gets uploaded, and you can react to it and say why you agree or disagree. That'd be awesome. Amazing. Okay, well, before we get into our topic for today, I'm sure we have some people to thank. We do have some people to thank. So thanks, as usual, to everybody that shares the podcast, expands the Sandy and Nora universe. I mean, I don't know if you saw Sandy, but there was uh, some very popular American podcasts that just announced that they were being canceled. And it was like independent podcasts like ours that then agreed to go to a media company and then the media company canceled them and then they lost all of their information, their data related to their feed, their feed, all of the old episodes removed from Apple News. And so we are very, very aware of the problems of going towards that kind of model to fund Sandy and Nora, which does mean we rely a lot on you folks. So thank you if you shared the podcast this week, told someone to listen to, or if you changed your donation or donated for the first time, especially thanks to Josh, Addie, Colin, Siri. Amanda, Gemma, and Greg. Thank you so, so much for your support. Thank you. Okay, Nora. So guess, you know, I've been thinking a lot about um, all of this AI stuff that's been happening. We spoke about it a few uh, weeks ago, but but less in the sort of um, way that we talked about it last time and more in um, a what's really at stake here sort of way is how I've been thinking about it. And listening to some of the news about how how some of the biggest sort of front door to the internet type companies are thinking of using AI, I'm getting kind of nervous about our ability to uh, communicate with one another without like a profit motive, it being the intermediary between our communications and our ability to just get information. And so I'm thinking it might be a good idea to talk about what is the role of the public sector, like kind of in our lives, but also in this particular moment and why aren't they playing that role if they aren't, which, um, you know, spoiler alert, they're not. (laughs) So. (laughs) 
That is such a good question. And I'm sure you also saw the news this week about the Internet Archive losing in court against the big four publishers in the United yeah, States. I did. Threatening the existence of the Internet Archive. Yeah. yeah. So... It is such an interesting conversation because we live in a world where and this is like the world that was that was forecasted in many different ways, whether it was two decades ago or five decades ago or even 80 decades ago, where information would be the unit of production that is the most valuable, that is the most important for someone to have access to, because those who control information or have access to or create or whatever disseminate information are able to participate in the economy in ways that people who do not have those accesses, access points, they cannot. I think that the most obvious way to see this is with the internet and access to the internet, access to high-speed internet or broadband or whatever, uh, or access to the kinds of tools and training that will allow you to participate in a labor economy that is really rooted in the internet or in the knowledge economy or whatever. And that's something that we should definitely talk about. But, you know, we forget how the airwaves in this in this country were considered and still kind of are public property, that airwaves are something that uh, go over all of our heads. And therefore, there is a collective and common need to actually own them and regulate them. And this is why something like the CRTC exists. It's why when I was, you know, back on CR, uh, CKLN, which was a legendary and very troubled radio station at Toronto in Toronto years and years ago, we would read every morning at the beginning of our broadcast day, reminding the listeners that these airwaves are public and you have a right to participate, to have opinions on, to influence what goes over the airwaves. And even then, and I'm talking about 2010 or so, it always felt like anachronistic that we'd be reading this, these airwaves are public announcement. It, it felt like it was something from a different time. And I look back then thinking, wow, like I thought it was anachronistic then and, and today, like we could not be further away <laughs> from that. It just feels like there's been a runaway train away from understanding this stuff as being in the public interest and therefore something that could be for the public good. Yeah. And so in a world where, you know, right now um, we put a lot of trust into these private companies to mediate our our discussions or and our access to information whereas in in a previous era as you've mentioned we put a priority on regulating at least what sorts of things you would be hearing and making sure that they met certain standards at this point you know if i type something a question or something that I'm, I'm trying to search into Google, I may not even have to click on web pages anymore. Google has this thing now. It's part of. It's actually part of how their AI works, where it will crawl into to websites and perhaps give you an answer um, before you even have to to click on anything. And there's nothing to ensure for me that that answer that Google is giving me is accurate or complete. But a lot of us do trust that. And there's nothing that is regulating Google to make sure that that answer that I have requested is, is accurate. And in a world where we may very soon not be able to differentiate between images that are real and images 
that are created entirely um, by, uh, you know, uh, fully just created by AI image makers. Like, I'm just like, where is the public sector right now in regulating this? Because the implications for this could be serious and quite dangerous. It could, I can see this impacting you know, us politically, certainly, um, financially, certainly, all sorts of things. And I'm just like, hello, why is the public sector asleep at the wheel? And why have they been asleep at the wheel for so long? Well, Sandy, it's because this is freedom of speech. And if they were to do any of this stuff, it would be against our freedom of speech. Is that the case? Is it freedom of speech? <laughs> is this uh, about being against freedom of speech? Because if Google is the one who's deciding what I look at, if Facebook is the one that's deciding what I look at, if it's Twitter, if it's Instagram, if it's these algorithms that are um, privately held and uh, are created by code that isn't open source so no one can see it, is this about free speech or is it actually about controlling what I see and um, having that you know, mediated by a, a motive that is about profit? It's, is it about extracting as much as it can out of me? And what do we lose in that process? I mean, for, for years, you and I have talked about, um, you know, like, why is it the case that every election cycle, we never hear promises about, you know, making um, communications free and accessible to all people like that, should be one of the things that in a day like today in 2023, where you need communications to like go to school, to do all sorts of different types of work, to now even communicate a lot of times with healthcare providers. Like there's just so many things that you're expected to have access to communications for, like even taxes, it's getting harder to do that sort of thing um, without having some sort of connectivity to the internet. Then if we're expected to use this stuff, why isn't it provided to us? And why isn't it provided to us with some regulation? Well, the simple answer is because it's actually the most powerful way to make sure that marginalization continues in this day and age. And marginalization, I mean, there's a whole bunch of easy ways to keep people marginalized through laws, racist laws or, or sexist laws or ableist laws or whatever. And we know that. But this kind of thing is so insidious that it actually takes a lot of reflection and thought on how society is reconstructed by what access it has and doesn't have to the kinds of technologies that we're talking about or access to the knowledge economy or access to online uh, services or tools or whatever. And, you know, I think classically we think about this as elderly people, let's say, who are newer to the internet and someone who is born only knowing the internet and that there's a, 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 a whole, like a jump of, of knowledge that has to happen to be able to make someone feel comfortable being online. But like the reality is, is that this is actually just the excuse that we have to completely transform our real life relationships with one another. That you can't go to the bank anymore and have service. You have to go online. And if the online world doesn't work for you because it sucks and the, the interface is shitty and the chatbots don't make any sense and you need to talk to a real person because you've fallen into like some sort of Kafka-esque internet loop that doesn't make any sense on their website, you are fucked. You cannot go anywhere because there's nobody at any teller anywhere that can actually say, oh, here's the problem. Uh, our system doesn't accept, uh, you know, accent ease or something like that. Or you've added a comma instead of a period for the zeros and that's 
that's not going to really work here. You know, like there's so many minor ways that this plays out, but it it absolutely reconstructs society based on who is able to access these tools and who isn't. And so the state has has a an interest in not making any of this stuff better. They, they have an interest in making sure that people do not have access to these tools, do not have the ability to learn them or or I mean, even more importantly, that the state does not get involved in this world by creating its own tools that Canadians could use. I mean, one of the things I've been thinking about like a lot lately is just how impossible it is to weave together a a, a news list that you want to read and that none of us have common tools to do this. So it's like, where is, where's like a Canadian news feed that doesn't curate anything that just gives us like, let's say Twitter of just news sources. And it's then managed by like a crown agency or something that like has nothing to do with the content that just makes sure that the whole fucking system works. Like not even that is in the realm of possibility because of how absolutely pathetic the state is in, in wanting to actually give access to, to, to the citizens, which, which it does not. Yeah. And I think it's like, it's like access is part of the problem. And like, I mean, you've named like one example, there could be, I mean, we talked about this during the pandemic too. There's like the, the, like just literal access to the internet. Like the, the fact that phones are pretty much a necessity in this life, um, uh, giving people access to the phone. Like, I mean, for Christ's sake, we used to have, uh, publicly available, um, telephones, uh, for 25 cents, you know, remember those, uh, pay phones. Now they just, you know, we, we, we don't even think about that. Um, I was, I was at the park this weekend and there was a woman who was desperately trying to ask people if she could use, um, a phone. Uh, she seemed to be in like a, a crisis situation. She had her kids with her and she was going to people uh, from person to person in the park, uh, desperately trying to find um, someone who uh, would allow her to use a phone. I mean, like this is this stuff should be available to anyone. And um, so so there's that there's the access. And then there's like the regulation piece to me. That's like uh, like such a huge thing that is a such a major issue right now that I'm like really really nervous about um the the sort of like exit I suppose that the that the public sector has made on all sorts of um, ways that our society is moving right now as it's moving forward, you know, like uh, in the past, as you as you describe, you know, we set up the CRTC when um, communications are changing in our world um, to make sure that, you know, there's some regulation, there's some rules around how we are communicating with each other en masse. And now, you know, there's been such a shift, such a change in the last 20, 25 years on how quickly communications has changed, access to information has changed, and there's literally nothing uh, that's been done. It's like, okay, so so now websites need to ask me if they can, like, track my cookies. Like, that's, like, the extent of regulation and making sure that websites that are available in Canada are, webs- are available in English and French. It's like, can we move a little bit forward, a little bit, can we do a little bit more than these things as this technology is developed? Um, you know, if the internet is meant to be uh, the this era's um, new type of library, 
then shouldn't we be considering looking at it like we've considered looking at li- like we've considered libraries in our society's past as something that we should uh, like provide in a public way, just as they're um, available for people to to create in other ways as well. Mm-hmm. Now, there's also a lot of talk around how the federal government is approaching online media companies like Meta and Google and Bill C-18. And Bill C-18 is just so classically liberal. Again, so you look at Canada's broken local news scene and it's like, why is this scene broken? Oh, I don't know. Probably because these newspapers have been purchased by hedge fucking fund companies and sold off for parts. That probably is why you know, the, the the formerly glorious daily newspapers of medium and small sized cities in this country are nothing much more than like the penny saver used to be, which if you know what the penny saver is like, I guess it doesn't matter. Uh, just, you know, something that just sells ads more than it actually tells you anything that's going on. And so the bill is trying to get Google and Facebook to fork over money for sharing links to Canadian media sources. Because, of course, Facebook in particular, like people are on Facebook to see what's going on. And so a lot of local news will be made by CTV, let's say, shared on the platform on a platform like Facebook. And uh, CTV doesn't actually see any money for the money they paid to produce the local news. This is such a fucking let's protect the status quo kind of approach to information in this country. And it's so easy to see that it's going to fail. And it's actually a joke. (laughs) Like, we can't even get Facebook to fork over taxes for doing business in Canada. And the federal government thinks that they'll be able to get Facebook to pay money every time that anybody uploads a fucking link to a CBC story or a Vancouver Sun story. Like, are, are you kidding me? Not to mention, like, the money that these companies have paid to invest money into um, hiring people in newsrooms. I mean, now the question is, is that money going to continue? Are those people really employees? Are they protected by collective agreements? We're seeing some issues like that arise. And you've got the federal government funding local journalists through the Local Journalism Initiative, again, to keep afloat In a lot of cases, businesses that fucking have no respect for the people that they apparently serve and really shouldn't be doing news at all. I mean, of course, there's a lot of smaller publications that rely on the the government money, but there's other ways for us to fund it than this. There's no interest in disrupting the status quo in any serious way. And it's hard to see Bill C-18 as anything other than like, I don't know, a charade. And then the worst thing is, is that the conservatives are making it about free speech. And so then all of a sudden you also have this dual narrative that the, that the liberals are trying to clamp down on free speech by trying to go after uh, Facebook and Google. It's, it's very bad. And it's like, at what point did we not ever have the idea to create a Canadian search engine? Why isn't there a Canadian internet archive? Why isn't there Canadian podcasting platforms? You know, like basic stuff that could be funded by the government of Canada that could be completely independent of the government of Canada's political side. And that would actually provide market interventions in all of these ways that would, I mean, I I think that Canadians would actually flock to them because when you're trying to provide news in the service of the the readers and the service of the people that are consuming news, the news is better than if you're trying to provide the news in the service of the three hedge funds that own your fucking shitty post-media company. 
Yeah, I mean, the, these ideas are like predicated on the fact that these like the idea that the that the way that the news is provided right now is great and can, needs it deserves to continue to be funded um, in the way that it's provided right now. And I can see why the liberals would like that, because, of course, I mean, you, you know, there's relationships that the that the liberal has with these and uh, these mass media providers. Um, and same thing with the conservatives, too. Uh, and but the thing is, it's like maybe this is not like the 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 profit motive is not the best way for news to be provided. What would happen if we saw news as a public good? I mean, uh, arguably the CBC, but arguably the CBC is also um, uh, driven by market um, pressures as as they try to compete uh, with the with the other um, uh, mainstream mass media providers in the country. But like, God, like, you know, it, it, we the public sector should be protecting things, providing things that are a public good. And information is a public good. <laughs> you know, whether it's through StatsCan or trying to understand what happened in my community last week. You know, um, StatsCan being like big data, like we understand that. We understand that we need um, access to clear information about Canada and what Canada is. We also need access to information about what's going on in our communities, what's going on in our provinces, what's going on federally, what's going on in our world. And we need to make sure that that information is accurate. So why wouldn't the public sector uh, be playing its role here and allowing um, these these private institutions uh, to control so much of what we need and access um, in in 2023. I, I don't know. I I become more and more nervous about this. Like, you know, tomorrow Facebook could decide that you know they they don't want to pay for um, keeping all of the data um, up and accessible to people that they that they have and and delete everything from. Uh, 2004 to, to 2015 that's on their platform. And what could we do about it? No, literally, literally fuck all. Like this is where it's really, really dangerous because the, the flip side of having more access to information than we've ever had in the history of humanity is that that information needs to be somewhere. Like there's a reason why we have librarians. <laughs> like there's a reason why we have archivists. There's a reason why we have people that actually store and collect and manage data. And the fact that there is very little to no public, well, certainly there's no public facing work like this that is done. There's, of course, Library and Archives Canada that's not so much pu public facing at all. It's really stunning. And, you know, I'm, you know, because I've started this new book, I'm relying a lot on documents and books and analyses from between 1940 and 1980 that explain where Canada was. Like, how did Canadians interact with their social services and this kind of thing? And a lot of the language is is so unbelievably foreign to where we are today that it's really amazing. And one of the mistakes that a lot of people make in this country, um, or made then, I think, is, is looking at that period as being like a glory period. Like there was really great ex you know, social welfare policies and expansionist policies that helped a lot of people out. And, and then racism and sexism is always kind of talked about, but it's never fundamentally understood as being part of the good, that's the, that was the flip side to the good. It's more of a kind of a footnote, like, oh, but things were really bad back then for this person or that person or whatever. But 
you know, all it, it seems to me is this like march towards undoing any role of the of the state, of the public sector to manage anything. And where there was a lot of fear that we would have certain social programs completely vanish. Uh, so we would have healthcare completely taken over by private interests and education would be taken over and exported and then imported from the United States and um, all of our social services like old age security or, or, or EI or whatever would just be gone. Things haven't disappeared. Um, and in fact, like in a lot of the programs, like the amount of money is that's being spent on them is perhaps less on a real dollar basis than 44. 40 or 60 years ago, but it's still there. It's still a program that does still exist. And it hasn't been destroyed in the way that people thought it was going to be. And for me, this has been a really interesting kind of uh, process of thinking through how the, 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 there's been a fundamental mental shift in understanding what then is the role of the state, starting in basically 1990, where the state actually doesn't have a role. And the state doesn't have a role in these certain fundamental things that the state had a role before neoliberal reforms in the era, the era of neo, neoliberalism. And, you know, when thinking of it th through those terms, how you can see that the airwaves were a public good, that you needed to manage the airwaves, that you had to make sure that there was regulation, that regulation included what goes and what doesn't go on the airwaves versus this, the, the Internet, which we cannot even imagine Canada trying to regulate now. And, and it would just amount to people crying uh, censorship, as I said. It, it really does speak to the, the multi-decade slide that we've gone through in, in, in the upheaval of what the state was built to do for a for a group of people for from primarily for white men but that it did well for my, white men while doing very horrible things to everyone else i agree with all that except for for one thing like i i do think we can imagine uh what that uh, you know canada uh, intervening would look like in 2023 and what it means just something completely different. And that, I mean, we can imagine it through what's happening with TikTok in both the United States and Canada, which is just like, you know, it's so hilarious. It's it, the idea that, you know, gosh, this company is taking all your data. It's like, okay, like all the other companies. <laughs> and so we're going to, we're going to stop you from being able to access this company because of xenophobia instead of like, that's, that's the place where, where people are fine. Um, the government is fine to have this conversation. Like, uh, xenophobia or, you know, something related to war, for sure. All of a sudden, we can talk about regulation, um, even when this company is doing substantially the same thing as other companies like Facebook, Twitter, and so on. And before you say, okay, but their countries aren't accessing that data. I mean, I just like, I don't know. Uh, do you remember everything about um, the the U.S. spying on its citizens? Like, because I certainly do. <laughs> and the way that these private institutions are totally fine with uh, with turning that information over to U.S. government agencies, like I certainly do. So, I mean, uh, it's not that we can't do it. It's just that certainly, like this this um, uh, these sort of neoliberal principles are exactly what's running our government right now and the the consequence is is quite high like i think we can all um think about you know, the last few elections that we've been through in canada and the conspiracy theories the the ridiculousness that has uh, come to um 
to really exemplify what a, a election period is going to look like. It's, it, you know, the, whether or not we're going to, what's going to be true and what's not true, what politicians are willing to just talk out of their ass about now and who else is going to imply, um, who else is going to impact uh, how uh, elections go based on uh, claims that might be entirely false. And it's just like uh, so bizarre to me. Elections are just one one field in which this can be an issue. Obviously, health is another one. We can think about all of them. And um, I'm just like, wow, we've got we've got no plan. And we have so hollowed out the idea of what a public sector is supposed to be that nobody seems to even be upset about it. Well, if anything, they're upset if you even challenge that logic. Yeah. That's what's stunning to me. You mean in terms of, like, the public sector or people in the public generally? Like, are you talking about government actors or are you talking about people? Both, both. The conservatives use it as a boogeyman to make sure that people don't vote for the liberals who want to control their speech. And then average people kind of fall in line with that, with those kinds of reasonings. Right. Like there's there's no creative there's no creativity. There's no ability to imagine anything different than what we've been handed. And and it's really fascinating because like the Internet and social media and and, and digital information like it's it is mind expansive like it shows you things that nobody would have ever been able to see before and you can imagine new things and you can see new kinds of art and see new kinds of film and have your mind blown there's a lot of terrible stuff online that's also like you know the depths of we shouldn't even imagine this kind of stuff but it's out there and somehow we can't then get back into the real life and say so what does the proper regulation of this look like and how do we express our collective aspirations, our collective values, our collective norms through some sort of made in Canada approach to this behemoth, this, this, this internet and, 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 and all of the different ways that information is shared. You know, I, I, I've been watching like, I mean, like everybody probably have been watching this, this, the, this, the, the, these two CSIS agents being like incredible leakers of information, leakers of information. That's just like nonstop happening to make sure that, Canada under Canadians think that there's electoral interference uh, by by China, which again, like probably, but but the way that these stories are happening, I'm not sure. I'm believing them, and so you got Global News, who has these two CSIS officials just leaking and leaking, and leaking, and they remain anonymous. And it's so interesting because I think that there's this idea that with all of the information that is available to us right now. How could it be that the same kind of tactic that would have been possible in 1950 and much harder to verify is happening again today? And, and part of it's because there's this tremendous benefit of the doubt given to news agencies for doing the right thing, which is like, that's fucking fine and aspirational. But guess the fuck what? I wouldn't be trusting that. Um, but the other side of it assumes that there is so much access to information that if global news is it thinks that there's something here and thinks that this is two individuals who really are leaking private information from CSIS for some reason, doing things illegally, then it must be true. And so like we're caught in this interesting dilemma where in this age of information, lying is, is, is just as easy and actually in some cases takes the same form that it took in 1950. So like that's all very bad. Then like let's talk about what happens to uh, our society when 
voice uh, voices get replicated over and over so people say things or made to say things that they've never said or deep fake videos are made or AI is made to make people look like they're in certain compromising positions. I mean, we are rapidly going towards an era where we will not be able to trust anything like literally anything. And I know that everyone's freaking out. He's got a blue check mark on Twitter that, oh, they won't be able to verify our identity now that we don't have a blue check mark, as if those of us who don't have blue check marks have also had to deal with impersonation. But anyway, and it's like, yeah, because of course you'd be worried about that. No one has any fucking confidence in Twitter to actually manage this. Again, th- what the fuck is the role in the state when it comes to someone stealing your identity, per- impersonating you, stealing your voice, stealing your image ma- or your likeness, making videos about you? That is absolutely a place where the state needs to play a role. And it doesn't seem to me like we are anywhere in the realm of possibility or even thinking of this stuff that the state could play a role of in any positive way. Like, imagine we didn't have to appeal to Elon Musk to have our identities protected by Twitter, or imagine we didn't have to send Twitter our private information to get an account associated with our names. Like, our government actually played a bit of a role in there. Like, then we wouldn't have to be worried when Twitter fucking randomly fires all of its staff, or when Facebook lays off 10,000 people, or when Google lays off 10,000 people. Like, we, we've just set ourselves up for, I think, such a tremendous fall that... Um, that we really don't have any popular conversations about how bad that fall is going to be. Yeah, um, and those were some really great examples. A, a friend of mine on Facebook also posted an example of um, some of the ways that uh, in terms of like information that this is going to become more and more of an issue. Um, you know, right now you could ask any of these chat bots that have, have been gaining popularity as, as people, you know, uh, go and use them and train them even more uh, for free for these private companies. Um, You can go and ask them any sorts of, uh, any number of questions that you'd want to ask. And um, this friend of mine on Facebook asked uh, a question that was like, who are the top 10, um, like who, name 10 philosophers or something like that. And I mean, oh God, you, like, <laughs> I can only imagine. You, yeah, you can. You, like you, I think we all know right now, like who, what would happen in uh, with a, a bot that is like just crawling the internet and trying to um, like predict what the the most likely answer to your question would be. It's like the ten. Uh, in terms of philosophers, 10 white men uh, from a very um, obvious era, right? Like, and if it becomes the case that this sort of AI is more and more how we are accessing information on the internet, you know, Google has this idea of BARD, Microsoft has this idea of whatever their chat situation is named, whatever, they're planning on, on changing it so that you're not just clicking on links that are accessible to you anymore and now I mean even now that's that's already a little bit weird because you know whatever I search is not because of cookies and the way that the internet works now is not going to be the same as what Nora searches they might try to to get me um, a list of 10 philosophers that they think I'd like and a list to Nora that they think that Nora would like but in the the question that my friend asked um, um, the the bots the re- the return is um, you know, uh, biased based on the um, the how the English speaking world of the internet um, uh, discusses who they discuss the most in terms of philosophers. Now, 
Um, that is now how our information is always going to be going to be regulated. In a world where we're doing things uh, through the public sector and you know through libraries or things are regulated through a library, we can know that we live in a racist world and that when we go to uh, the philosophy section, there might be far more books on uh, Plato than there would be on Angela Davis, as an example. But we can also talk to a librarian about that, and we can have interventions to figure out you know, how we're going to uh, correct for uh, fucked up things uh, that uh, the fucked up hegemonies that, like, uh, control our entire existence in society. Uh, with this, with the internet, if we're like just going to pass along all of our trust to these private corporations and they're just going to um, populate their algorithms based on what already exists, how do we fight against stuff like this? Like what becomes... What becomes what is real and like the accepted information that we are provided, um, and how do we how do we confront and and um, challenge um, accepted information if we if we don't even know who what is is uh, making those decisions for us in terms of these you know privately held algorithms like. You know, how do we do that? What are we going to do? Like, what is information? What is true? What is truth going to look like? And what are we solidifying as truth by refusing to um, make the interventions that, quite frankly, should be made? Well, and the worst part about this is that truth is always being fabricated by the far right. And this has been something I've been thinking a lot about in the last couple of weeks where something happened in my Twitter feed where I'm just now like constantly in the ire of a bunch of shitheads. And it is so amazing because in two situations, one group of, sh of shitheads and then another group of shitheads, one is tr in really, really making it so that I am anti-Semitic and it doesn't matter what I've ever said or what I've ever done. They just continuously reply to me. Say, oh, this is Nora Loretto, the anti-Semite. Oh, Nora's being an anti-Semite again, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, that's an interesting thing where enough people are constantly saying that I'm an anti-Semite, regardless of what the fuck they're talking about. And let us be clear, what they're talking about is literally nothing that is anti-Semitic, not objectively, not subjectively, for fuck's sakes. But then all of a sudden I get associated with that. On the other side, the other group of shitheads are all working very, very hard to make sure that the Humboldt stuff definitely stays on me. I've heard more about Humboldt in the last month online than I have, I probably did in all of 2020. And I think that is so interesting because again, it doesn't matter what I said. It doesn't matter what the fucking truth is. And the truth is, of course, that I didn't say that I hate white males and want them to die. The fact that so many accounts consistently say this about me over and over and over. Nora hates white males. She wants them to die. She wants them to die. She was happy. She jumped for joy on the graves of those of those boys that were all killed, which is like not even kind of fucking true. One hundred percent a lie. But it doesn't matter because it's feeding the the Internet a, a narrative about me that I can't. I can't get rid of. I can't beat. I can't by myself change anyone's mind because you can see the original things that I've said, whether they are criticisms of Israel or if they are what I said about Humboldt. And you can see for yourself that there is no truth in what people are saying. But they know that the more that it is fed and Twitter is such a good place to do this because it's like in average person voices. So if you're trying to feed something that's going to then actually become AI, then, you know, you have a, a what looks like a conversation like holy shit, like that's really bad news for, for anybody that gets caught in these smears. And I was seeing it pretty consistently 
uh, with other people too, especially around anti-Semitism. This person's an anti-Semite. And it's like, from what are you talking about? Well, uh, they apologize for being anti-Semitic. Okay, well, that's, I mean, don't apologize to the fucking mob ever. But it, the, the reconstruction of truth, of facts, of who we are, of what happens, of what we thought is fascinating. And I just wish that I could see all of this stuff from space and not actually be very much embedded and involved in it because it's like this is how truth gets remixed and reformulated and there is no recourse there's no way to push back against this stuff in a way that is going to be as effective as the way that they're coming at me so while you were saying all that i just googled you oh yeah 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 what's it say um you know how like oftentimes like someone's twitter will come up and then google will will write a description of of that person's twitter like next to the to the Twitter link that I thought was always just your Twitter bio, but in your case, it's not. Do you want to know what it says for me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it says Nora Loretto is a communist that hates Canada, which, <laughs> you know, might be true, but it's, Sorry, not what? Something that, it's not something that you've written as your bio. And it's certainly like, I don't know where this came from because you click on it and then it goes, I mean, it's just, it's literally the link mobile.twitter.com slash no lore. And it says Nora Loretto is a com communist that hates Canada. You click on it and it just goes to your profile, which it doesn't say anything about that. Wow. So yeah. Um, point proven. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So that's great. And, um, and the, and the merchants of disinformation know this. And so they just always are going to do this to, to those of us that they want to smear. And we, I mean, we've been talking a lot about the state and the, and the way that the state needs to be involved in these kinds of things. And we, I, you know, we, they did, it does. But like for the left, fuck, we also <laughs> kind of need to come up with our own, I don't even know what, our own what, like fucking truth wiki, Wikipedia or something <laughs> about who people actually are. I don't know. This seems really bad. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's uh, just going to get uh, worse and um, fuck like <laughs> uh, there's so many ways that we're um, uh, destroying uh, our society and this is one of them. No bueno. <laughs> no. No.